everyone, and welcome to season 10 of Be Her Talk with Selena Hill, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip-hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, I discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic Black millennial perspective, and I give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave your comments on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, and I will read as many as possible throughout this show. And now I am super excited to be here with you guys this Sunday to discuss the biggest stories of the week, everything from Kamala Harris's controversial speech in Guatemala, where she told migrants, and I quote, do not come to the border, to the end of the keeping up with the Kardashians era, to the new federal guidelines that give your employer legal right to mandate workers receive COVID vaccinations. And now later on in the show, I'll be joined by Dr. Ioma Uirica, a research professor in the Department of Public Policy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is also the co-founder of RISER and will discuss the history and significance of Juneteenth, the Black Independence Day. Now, please be sure to support Be Heard Talk by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash beheardtalk. Your support through a small donation will help us continue to support and amplify the issues that you care about. Now for today's show, I'll be joined by two of my favorite correspondents, starting with Evan Mastronardi, the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash. He is also a Bronx organizer for Rank the Vote NYC. How's it going, Evan? It's going great. Happy to be on Be Her Talk. As always, everybody follow Let's Not Be Trash. And remember, elections coming up. Remember to rank your vote. Absolutely. We're also joined by Damon Stubbs, who is the founder and organizer of Conscious and Pentecost, a faith and justice initiative, as well as a former executive leadership team member of the New York Urban League Young Professionals. How's it going, Damon? What's going on, Selena? It is going good, and it's beautiful here in the wonderful village of Harlem. Okay, <laughs> rep in Harlem. I love it. I love it. And Evan it's beautiful is in, in the Van Bronx. Cortland Village as well in the Bronx. Yes. Oh, that's the village. Oh, okay. <laughs> it is. It is. I, I love the little within, rivalry within within the broader beautiful village of Kingsbridge Heights. Of course, you know Kings, Kingsbridge. Hey, yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. Do the history, Harlem. Do the history. We're gonna we're gonna stop it right there. <laughs> we're gonna stop it right there. Um, we're actually gonna kick things off with the news roundup. This is the time where we unpack the stories that made you laugh, cry, or go on a profanity laced Twitter rant. Um, Evan, I'm gonna throw it over to you to kick us off. All right. As always, thank you so much for letting me host the news roundup. You know, these are stories that made us laugh. They make us cry. They must just shake our head and say, that's enough internet for today. But to start off, as Selena mentioned, it's been in the news, Kamala Harris on her first overseas trip since taking office alongside Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamate warned against illegal migration to the United States saying, do not come, do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws, secure our borders. Then adding, if you come to our border, you will be turned back. She then went on to talk about a more peaceful approach saying that she wanted the US and Guatemala to work together to find solutions to longstanding problems. It must be a relationship of trust, must be coupled with tangible outcomes in terms of what we do as leaders to convince people that there is a reason to be hopeful 
about their future and hopeful for their children. Now, while she is discussing, of course, uh, any sort of improvement between the foreign relations of the United States and Guatemala, asylum, as AOC, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez pointed out, is a legal means of seeking refuge at the United States. So those children, of course, won't find peace when they come to our border and they are turned away. And as she also pointed out, the US has had some interventionist policies across South America, across the globe, that has led to instability. So while it is important to work with governments to have peace and safety in their countries, it's also important to deal with the problem at hand, which is a complete influx of people seeking asylum at the border. And of course, this is on the heels of the Biden campaign seeking immigration reform and, and having it a part of their campaign uh, during the 2020 election. Damon, I'm gonna start with you because I do know, as you say, Kamala is your president. <laughs> how, how, how do you how do you feel? How do you feel about this term? Is it in line with the Biden message approach? Is it out of line? Did it surprise you? And last, is it fair to those migrants at the border? That's a lot. That's a lot of that's a lot right there to unpack. And so, but I would I would first say this that uh, Vice President Harris is the Vice President of the United States. She is yes. to take an official position that represents the United States' mm -hmm. official position and the administration. Mm -hmm. um, so I mm -hmm. would say this is very reminiscent of what we heard during the Obama administration. President Obama uh -huh. got the same slack when he said, uh, told migrants, don't come. Don't allow your children to come. It is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. We have to enforce. I think it's very good to know that, yes, we have to enforce our laws in the country. That That is what it is, right? And that includes asylum, right? Whether or not every single person that is coming across the border is seeking asylum, but rather maybe a more hopeful future, it may be the latter. And I think what's also very important to put this statement in context, we have an administration that just doesn't say don't come. We have an administration that is serious about investing and try to restabilize or stabilize um, that area of that country. Because as also Vice President Harris pointed out, that most migrants, they don't want to come to America. We ain't all that right? They prefer to stay in their home country, but they understand that there is such a situation there where there's no hope. You, it's hard to stop a family who wants the best for their children. It's hard to stop the human will because that journey is not easy. So they're coming for a specific, very critical reason. But I believe it's in line. Vice President Harris, I mean, what is she supposed to say? Everybody, I mean, it, I believe she has to reinforce that we will reinforce our laws. But on the other end, this administration is willing to invest money, infrastructure, power, resources into that area to try to bring stabilization so they can stay. And I think that's a good position to have. I know you want to stay, so let us help you. So, Selena, I, I think David brought up a bunch of good points. We do have laws. We, you know, the, the common argument is that why have laws if we shouldn't be enforcing them? Not everyone can seek asylum. But what I will say is, why can't we do both? Why can't we? be able to create better relations between Guatemala, help them, help their own country, and create more hope within the nation, but also create some semblance of hope for those who do make that journey, that there is a pathway for them here. Can we do both? Um, no, I would hope that we could do both, but I kind of feel like 
to Damon's point, it was reminiscent of past, what, what Kamala said was very reminiscent of, of past administrations. He went back to Obama, but I mean, Mike Pence said the same thing in 2018. And I just feel like doing anything that it, it has some type of semblance to the Trump administration is just tone deaf. Like we have a clip of it. Let's play the clip because I just feel like it didn't bode well, especially with the progressives that got her into office and the promises that Biden made about helping immigrants and not shutting them out. I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur. But we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration. And I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. So the, the part is, so when Kamala says like, do not come because it's dangerous, a large part of the reason why that trek is so dangerous is because the U.S. has militarized the border and forced migrants into the shadows. If she was so concerned about the danger, then we should obviously ease the migration restrictions and demilitarize the border. And of course, you know, as, as mentioned earlier, the reason why people are fleeing is also in large part because of the U.S. has created these conditions of violence and deprivation in Central America and in Mexico in the first place. So to answer your question, Evan, we absolutely need to do more. And I expect more from this administration because, again, it was people of color, it was progressives, it was black folks in particular that got them into office. And we're the ones who have been, you know, sympathizing and empathizing with our brothers and sisters in Mexico and Central America uh, for, for decades and, and pleading for them to get the asylum that they seek. The Biden administration, they're not, you know, they, they say one thing, but they're, they're putting policies into place that are, are not helping. For instance, uh, they kept the border closed to non-essential travel for public health purposes, thus turning away families and individuals, even those applying for asylum. And again, applying for asylum at the border is legal. So what's the message that they're really communicating? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to give one last thing before we move on. And of course, this is to both Ooh. of you, which is that <laughs> which is that um, as, as you brought up, Selena, that if, if there is a dangerous trek that is known, that's basically saying that I am, must be coming from more danger at home, right? That's saying where I come from, my land is so dangerous, is such a bad opportunity for me and my family right now that I am willing to make that trek. Now, to the point of Kamala Harris and the Guatemalan president, that's what we want to put for first and foremost, great. But that's not gonna happen overnight. They're not going to restabilize this region overnight. So clearly, while there will be continued danger there and danger on the way over here, there needs to be something in the interim. So my last question is, is there some compromise here between these two positions? Is there any compromise here between basically turning away and doing a hard stop and saying entirely waiting for restructuring and saying that, okay, well, we're going to let in 
basically with very little restrictions, which is not really the case, but let's pretend that that's the case and focus on that. What is, do we see any compromise here? Do we think there will be a compromise on this issue? And I'm opening it to either both of you. I mean, honestly, I think the compromise first, let me just say this, that when Vice President Harris is saying do not come, um, like you, there are going to be people that are still going to come anyway. Okay. Yeah. But I yeah, think yeah. that has to be said as an official position, don't do mm -hmm. it. Do not come. Mm -hmm. I think the compromise is that I'm sure the United States government will still be allowing in migrants. I'm sure there still be people who will be accepted through asylum. I'm sure that is part of the compromise. They are not you know, doing as harshly and inhumanely as the Trump administration treated migrants. That is part of the compromise. And I think what else is being worked out is, is a compromise with Mexico, which the vice president just had a successful meeting with the Mexican president and the Mexican president praised Vice President Harris for the way she is approaching um, this, this crisis that's going on. So I think that that is part of the compromise, but I think that there, there has to be a balance there. And I think also our border is kind of overwhelmed and you can't deny that. It's overwhelming. Yeah. So what do we do? What you can't say, okay, come on, we cannot handle it. So I well, mean, if we can't handle it, it's don't come. And those who are really going to take that trek, there are those who have that human will who's going to come anyway. But as an official position, it has to be, hey, slow down, wait up, homie. Like, you know, we need some time. Uh, can I respond? Yeah, quickly. And I also wanted to say Peggy Branch left a comment via LinkedIn. She says maybe the message should be is don't send young children alone. It's dangerous saying maybe uh, Kamala could have uh, tailored that message a little bit. My response to you, Damon, is that uh, you, you, when we say, you know, this administration is taking a different um, stance or, you know, yes, it is not we are not hearing the xenophobia that we heard from the Trump administration and the cruelty. However, the Biden administration has continued to use uh, immigration detention and it has planned to continue the militarization of the border as shown by his administration's $1.2 billion request for border infrastructure. In comparison, only $345 million has been allocated for U.S. citizenship and immigration services to clear naturalization and get rid of those asylum backlogs, uh, backlogs that you were referring to by saying we are backed up. So yes, we need to invest in these countries that we destabilize, uh, and we we have to do something about this crisis because we're part of the reason why it's here. And again, I, I'll stick to my point by saying don't come. What we should be saying is we are going to help uh, your country, your your communities build up so that you you no longer have to seek asylum from these situations. Absolutely, and that's, and, and sorry, but that was exactly what was said. I know we just highlighted do not come, but the full context of our message was that we are helping back and the whole build back better phrase of this administration, now they're taking on a more global approach with it. That is the, the, the focus, is to help these countries become stabilized. And the number that you mentioned over the decade, um, well over $1.5 billion have been invested into these countries of trying to help them become stabilized. Now that investment needs to be greater because the need is great, but that, that is the compromise. The compromise is we are investing. We are going to send resources and money and trying to help you stay where you are because what I love Vice President Harris saying is she acknowledged that our, our water ain't that wet. Like you really want to stay. And that is the truth. They prefer to stay, but it's just so harsh. It's a very difficult situation. And I'll say this and I'll shut up. 
that I hope that 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 politicals and people do not expect Vice President Harris to solve the immigration problem in a couple of years. It's just yeah. not going to happen. And I think we, she's going to see a lot of pressure on that. But that's that. All right. That that's a good point, Damon. That is that would be an undue uh, responsibility put on VP Harris that has not been put on uh, just about anyone. But rhetoric matters. And so does content. And I think you both did a good job at addressing both of those things. So thank you for talking about this important topic. We are now going to move on to a topic that also involves health, uh, more domestically uh, health, and that is how we continue to deal with the coronavirus pandemic. And employers, as the New York Times put out, yes, your employer can require you to be vaccinated. It is not a violation of rights. Um, there's a there's something called HIPAA violation, Health Insta Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which does have protections for patients' confidential health information, but as the Times mentioned, it covers what your healthcare provider can share with others rather than employers and what they can ask for. Now, again, this is not mandating that employers do this. This is allowing them to do so. And it is also taking into account that there will be certain accommodations. So, of course, this won't be a blanket policy across the board. And on top of that, of course, there will be states that have different policies within this. As we know, across this country, there have been states that have not enforced mask mandates. So let alone wanting employers or even suggesting employers do this. This will definitely be a system that we likely see more and more in New York and the northeastern states and California and less so in the southern states. I'm going to just give a broad question uh, to both of you, which is, do we think this is a fair measure for employers to do for the greater good of their employees? Or do we see some uh, inequities here? Whoever wants to go first. Damon? I think it's okay. okay. I mean, honestly, I feel nothing wrong with it. Um, I feel as though the accommodations are appropriate. I think that you have health accommodations and religious practice accommodations. Yep. And I think if it's trying to keep a better, healthy, safe environment for the broader of individuals who are getting vaccinated, who would like to stay vaccinated, and for those who can't, the fact that those who can't be vaccinated because of other health issues need to be protected. If you can, you should. And and I think that, that I think that's fine. I think it, it is not really any privacy issues. I think we've already settled this during the smallpox. The Supreme Court ruled on it then. Um, I, I don't see anything. And I think that one of the times did mention, the article did mention that they encourage employers to, to really acknowledge the inequities that do exist as far as vaccine accessibility and to have patience and to be calm with that and to be patient with that. Now, employers, if they want to mandate, maybe they should provide it. Maybe they should make sure that it's available to everyone to get it. But other than that, I really don't see anything wrong with it. I'm sure people will get me for it, but you know. <laughs> well well, thanks for answering the question first, Damon. I, I mean, I, I agree. What you said to me is, is accurate and reasonable and rational, but I also understand the sentiment of many of those who do not trust the government because of the years of medical racism, especially those of us in the black and brown communities. So, you, you know, and when I hear it, it's just you can't argue. You know, I, I don't always feel compelled to really argue uh, uh, for um, those of us who don't trust the government because we have real reasons not to. Uh, regardless of the fact, I feel like the Washington, um, the Wall Street Journal actually uh, also released a, a letter saying uh, a, a report saying that employees who don't want to get vaccinated 
and don't want to go back to the office, they're quitting. <laughs> okay, rather than going back, they are quitting their jobs more than at any other time in the last two decades. In April, in fact, the share of U.S. workers leaving jobs was at 2.7%, according to the Labor Department, and that's a jump uh, from 1.6% a year earlier. So, hey, if you don't want to go back, if you have the the, the um, opportunity and, and privilege to, to quit and to take advantage of other opportunities, yeah. do so. And now the last thing I'll say about the story is besides of us on the left who have real reasons not to trust the government, there's also the far right uh, mm -hmm. of our white brothers and sisters who are saying they don't want to take the vaccine. And in fact, there was a lawsuit brought on um, in Texas, nearly 200 employees at a Houston uh, Methodist uh, a hospital were suspended without pay last week because they failed to get uh, fully vaccinated. And in the lawsuit, they equated the vaccine trials, as they said, to Nazi Germany experimentation on Jewish people. Now, extreme, very, very extreme, has nothing to do with Nazi Germany. And uh, luckily, the judge dismissed the entire case. So we're hearing a, a lot of skepticism from both sides of the political aisle when it comes to the vaccinations. We are. But Selena, I'm glad you drew the distinction between the far right anti-government trust with these wild comparisons and the much more legitimate concern of the black community in this country that to this day faces disparities in medical treatment. And I want to point out that there are many, many people, including a uh, shout out to Dr. Stephen Thomas, who was on the Samantha B Show, um, for going into barbershops even, in places where communities gather and educating people at, at our own, at, at you know, a, a reasonable pace with reasonable understanding without guilt, because that's the type of education campaign that needs to be done. And thank you for pointing out those distinctions because there is a difference in skepticism. Yeah, I, I need, we need to go to a comment, I see. Yes, thank you. So Chantel Maria says via Facebook, y'all do realize the COVID shot is an experimental vaccine, which is less than a year old. We are currently in a human trial. Do we still have ownership over our own bodies or are we owned by our state are we owned by our employers? Who wants to take that? I would say we're not owned by our state, definitely, because we were, if we were owned by our state, then I believe then we will be criminalized for not taking the vaccine. Now, and this is a private institution and all businesses have not taken on this. So this is a private choice. And many of us have a living right to work state. So you don't have to work there pretty much. You can work somewhere else. And I know that's a harsh reality for some people who want to depend on that job. But there are a lot of things that we in this country don't have uh, the privilege of doing with our bodies. You know, there's a lot of things we would want to do, but the state or your employer has put things in line. I'm sure some of us would love maybe to, uh, even though it's decriminalized, maybe you want to partake in marijuana, but there are some places where you can't because they feel as though it's unsafe. Does that mean you're not in control of your own body? No, it means that you do have a choice though, whether or not to work there or not. Right. As, as you said, private enterprise here is, is doing different things with and, and, and has the ability to do different things. But also as Selena mentioned, it's not always as easy to leave from one job to another based on those decisions. So thank you both uh, for discussing this. And, and of course, the last thing I want to say, just realize, um, vaccines have always been here. 
Mm -hmm. And we've always had to take vaccines. So many of us to go to school had to take vaccines, even as far as college, I had to have certain vaccines. So this will continue to be a part of our, our daily life. I want to now move to environmental conservation and the news on the Keystone Pipeline. Whereas Donald Trump had uh, continued a permit in 2017, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden has officially canceled the pipeline. He has revoked this permit. The pipeline was a big bone of contention among environmentalist activists, a $9 billion oil pipeline, um, which was going to carry thousands upon thousands of barrels, stretch over across 1,200 miles. It was going to go through uh, Native American lands. So now it's canceled. It is something that was going to hold us back from uh, transitioning from fossil fuels to more sustainable energy. It's a long time in the making, but do we believe that this is uh, a major battle in the war? Do we believe that this is just uh, keeping up appearances for uh, environmentalism and supporting conservationism under the Biden administration? Or is this really the start of, a, of an important movement? Selena, you first. What do you think? Yeah, no, I applaud the Biden administration for canceling uh, the Keystone Pipeline. Uh, it was a long battle since it was first initiated or came about uh, during the Obama years. And I'm happy we won because studies have shown th that leaks from all sand pipelines like Keystone uh, lead to significant degradation of nearby land and water resources. Uh, it's also a major concern is the product of toxic waste from mining in those tar sands and that can sicken communities and wildlife that actually depend on that land to survive. But look, the cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline is just the start. Uh, there's other infrastructure that needs to be removed that was part of Keystone. And uh, now environmentalists are calling for Biden to cancel other cross-border uh, fossil fuel expansion projects like Line 3 pipeline expansion in Minnesota. And look, a lot of these uh, this activism is being led by indigenous people. So they're saying that, you know, there's ancestral ground grounds that these Keystone mm -hmm. pipelines and the pipelines would affect and damage. And obviously we know that they use the land. They... Um, not only do they uh, preserve the land, but they need the land and it is their land. So uh, I'm just happy that this was one battle for a one in a very long war. Thank you. Damon, what do you think? Um, when it comes down to the pipeline, I, overall, environmentally speaking, and for the native people, I think this is a, a positive win. But one of the things we do have to say, hopefully this administration is saying, and something that has been let down other administrations, where are these new clean energy jobs? Where are the projects that will bring the mm -hmm. same economic impact to the communities this pipeline would have helped? I am not saying I'm for the pipeline, but what I am for is for communities having economic impact. And so this mm -hmm. pipeline was going to bring tens of thousands of jobs, no doubt. This pipeline was going to add a, over a billion dollars to local GDP. This pipeline was going to bring millions and millions of dollars of property tax revenue that many of these communities definitely desperately needed because much of that area of America is underdeveloped. They need better economic projects. And so if you are going to cancel this pipeline, then I believe you ought to work very hard to ensure that there is a, a better, another economic reality that is positive and a better outlook. So my thing is, 
President Biden, the administration and others. I, I am for making sure that that land is not desecrated and that we have healthy environments. But what I'm also for is that you better bring something to the table that can have a positive economic impact on these communities because that revenue would have helped. The, I don't care about Canada and them being mad, but those local residents who were for it, I can mm -hmm. see why, because they, these, sets, these skill sets that these workers have mm -hmm. in the oil and gas industry, you need to, if you better spend a lot of money retraining and, and, and doing something because I can mm -hmm. see their point of view. It is an economic blow. Yes. And as you said, we must always come with alternatives. It's that we can say something is uh, wrong, is not uh, good for the environment, that activists and progressively speaking, correct move to do, but what are the alternatives? We must have alternatives. We must still care about the jobs that were lost and create better ones for clean energy. Okay, we're going to wrap right now. So one, I'm just gonna do one minute left. What do we think about the end of keeping up with the Kardashians? What do we think about Caitlyn Jenner refusing to acknowledge Joe Biden? I'm gonna just throw both of those together in one big thing. And also a Kim Kardashian's finger looking weird in that ad, if you wanna throw that in there too. Because, uh, I don't know what there is much to say about that, except yeah, Photoshop, unfortunate for an all-inclusive body thing, but that's that. Uh, end up keeping up with Kardashians, Caitlyn Jenner doesn't realize reality. What do we think? So Chantel Maria says via Facebook, bye y'all. Um, I think I, I agree with Chantel here. Um, th that's my sentiment. Bye. It is an end of an era. Let's not forget that these women appropriated black women's bodies. They have been, uh, criticized as culture vultures, and they have profited and exploited. So many times have they culturally appropriated everything from box braids. Remember, they were calling them boxer braids. Then they started doing the baby hair. And it's just, it's just too much. And at this point, it was a lot of a willful ignorance, I think. Um, you knew better. Uh, they knew better. And I I'm just over it with, with Caitlin, you know, running for governor in California. And, you know, she did that interview on The View. And they asked, well, did Biden win the election? She was like, I'm not going to talk about that. This family is so problematic. And for some reason, we continue to feed them with our attention and our dollars. I'm sick of it. Uh, Damon, did Joe Biden win the election? <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biden won the election fair and square, okay? So I can confidently say that. And honestly, Evan, I don't want to waste too much time on the Kardashians. I mean, who cares? I mean, I, I really don't. I really don't care. Now, Caitlyn Jenner, on the other hand, uh, Caitlyn is doing what Republicans do. And the bigger story out of that is mm -hmm. in 2021, this is what it takes to be a Republican candidate. <laughs> is, is to deny mm -hmm. elections and to keep on propagating the big lie. And I think that is very telling. And uh, as AOC has said that we are living in a fantasy uh, that we think we can do bipartisanship with Republicans that don't even exist anymore like they used to, okay? You can't do bipartisanship mm -hmm. with someone who on national television can't even just say, yes, the election was okay, yes, he won. I mean, give me a break. So that's that. And that thing was weird. Is, yeah. <laughs> That, that, yeah, the finger was weird. Uh, I agree. This is, there's a reason we condensed this to like two minutes because it kind of all meant the same thing. And uh, yes, you cannot do bipartisanship with fan fiction. And that is what the Republican Party is. They write fan fiction. So I'm going to end this news roundup with that. And Selena, back to you.
Thank you so much, Evan. So before we talk about Juneteenth and we invite our featured guests to the show, I need to talk about some of the stories that made me say, really? This past week. First of all, the CDC is changing the mask mandate. I like masks. And I like the idea of mask culture, not spreading germs, catching less colds, and not getting the flu. And people actually keeping distance in New York. So I personally never understood why so many people were up in arms about government issue mask mandates at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Obviously, racism, white fragility, privilege, and supremacy played a major part here. And now the CDC is helping states lift mask mandates by giving the green light to vaccinated people to go maskless. Really? Like, do you expect us to believe that the same people who are buying COVID negative tests and sending death threats to state officials who supported mask mandates for the safety of the world, who just so happened to be cousins with the insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol, are now going to just magically become these pillars of honesty and integrity and not lie about being vaccinated just to be maskless? Really? I think not. Moving on. Destiny's Child catered to you. It sparked a huge debate on Black Twitter. Um, now, a decades-old debate is, is this Destiny's Child smash hit catered to you anti-feminist? A number of y'all have been sounding off on Twitter about the song being overtly submissive and even likening it to slavery. Those tweets, guys, look, please, let us not forget the slavery that Destiny's Child described and catered to you. Guys, girls, really? The song is about catering to a loving partner while in a healthy, safe, and reciprocal relationship. Not that person that doesn't actually like you, but you want to keep them around for whatever reason. Are y'all okay? And also, just remember, Beyonce was in love when this song dropped, and she gave a full album of odes to her husband. So really, really. Last story. A Catholic nun has pled guilty for stealing school's funds for her gambling addiction. So NPR reported, and I quote, that a retired California nun has agreed to plead guilty to stealing, stealing $835,339 from a Catholic elementary school at that where she was the principal in part for to fund her gambling habit. The DOJ announced that Mary Margaret Cooper, who was 79, has been charged with one count of money laundering and one count of wire fraud. Now, really, does the Catholic Church need another scandal? Mary Mother, this, not good. All right, guys. And now, last thing, I'm going to try to make something make sense that just does not make sense. An Arkansas woman is suing police after a pit maneuver flipped over her car while she was going 60 miles per hour while she was pregnant. Let's play the clip. Got the number three lane shut down. 
Lord. So Nicole Harper was two months pregnant when an Arkansas state trooper using a police driving maneuver flipped her car over on a highway for not pulling over quickly enough. Now, in 2020, the Washington Post reported that since 2016, at least 30 people have been killed and hundreds more injured when police use these type of maneuvers to end car chases. At least 18 of those deaths were when police tried to stop the cars from minor traffic violations, such as speeding. And at least four people died, uh, have been bystanders or victims of the crime. So as reported by BuzzFeed News, this is systemic. We have police gangs, unions who face little to no repercussions. So they're for their regard to human or lack of regard for human life. Uh, police misconduct and brutality come in many forms. No one is safe while we have a lack of accountability and a lack of legislation that would hold police officers accountable. This story just does not make sense. And we're going to end it there. Now, without further ado, it's time to talk about the blackest black holiday in the nation, Juneteenth. In a few weeks, America will celebrate July 4th with fireworks and fanfare. For many Americans, it's a day of liberty and freedom as we commemorate the adoption of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. However, for African Americans, it's a reminder of the gross injustice and cruelty towards our communities. As enslaved people, Blacks did not enjoy the protections, entitlements, and privileges afforded by the U.S. Constitution. And now, although President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, declaring all slaves are legally free, it took years before that news traveled throughout the country. It was also harder to enforce the executive order in rebellious southern states like Texas, where there were few Union troops. So as a result, African-Americans were still enslaved, working on plantations as late as 1865, while there were 250,000 people still enslaved in Texas alone. It wasn't until June 19th, 1865, when Union soldiers traveled to Galveston, Texas, to announce that the Civil War had ended and all enslaved people were free. Newly freed slaves rejoiced in the streets, and in 1866, freedmen organized the first June 19th or Juneteenth celebration. Now, Juneteenth is still observed in many states as a holiday, and it's, it's observed as a, a chance to celebrate real freedom and the spirit of resilience and resistance in the Black community. So to help us discuss the history and significance of Juneteenth, we are joined by Dr. Ioma Yu Iroka, a research professor in the Department of Public Policy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is also the co-founder of Researchers Investing, Investigating Social, Cultural, Equity, and Race Network, which is an organization better known as RISER. Thank you for joining us, doctor. Thank you so much for having me, Selena. Absolutely. So I want to kick this panel off by asking for you personally, what does Juneteenth mean? So first, I want to say thank you for having me. And it's just apropos that Juneteenth was actually first recognized in the States um, in 1979 in Texas. I was born in 1979 in Denton, Texas. So it's just apropos. So for me personally, it means as a mother 
of two young black children, including one who's celebrating her eighth birthday. Hey, Alani, happy birthday. It really means that it's a time for black joy in all of its fullest form, but it's also a time for remembrance about our culture, about our roots, all of the trials and tribulations. It is really a time to just uplift black communities, black parents and families, and really try to improve our life outcomes no matter what. And then I would say finally, for me personally, it's also a time that I want my friends, my colleagues, especially my white, who consider themselves white allies, to also learn about the full contribution of black people in the US, but also across the globe. So it's a time for celebration, but also a time for remembrance. Absolutely. You know, speaking of allies, I, I want to get Evan and Damon's voice into the conversation. Evan, what do you say about Juneteenth? What do you think about the holiday and when did you start celebrating it? Unfortunately, I started celebrating it a few years ago. And uh, as with many things in our broken, and some will say working as a educational system, just like we talked the other day about the uh, Tulsa massacre, these things were just the, these very crucial, important parts of history, a part of black liberation, a part of black struggle were just left either intentionally, probably intentionally, or maybe in some cases out of ignorance, out of our curriculum. And uh, that needs to change. People need to realize that, you know, not only are not all people free now, but even at the time when our history told us more people were free, they still weren't really free. So uh, I went to my first Juneteenth actual celebration like outside with, you know, with a bunch of people with you, Selena, last year. And it was one of the great, and it was one of the great uh, moments of my, uh, first time I went outside during the pandemic. But this is something that I think needs to be a much stronger integral part of our education. Just a slight reminder of how delayed and delayed freedom has been for Black Americans. Absolutely. So Chantel left a comment via Facebook saying, pour out libations for our ancestors on Juneteenth, another way to celebrate. You know, Evan, to your point, a lot of us, even black folks, we just started celebrating Juneteenth because we weren't made aware of it. Uh, Professor, we know you were from uh, Texas, so I, it was a huge holiday there. But I think uh, other parts of the state, especially other parts of the country, especially those states in the north, it wasn't always celebrated. I know I personally started in my adult life around 2013. Damien, how has Juneteenth been for you? Has it been something that you've always even known about? Not always known about. I think I probably came in contact with Juneteenth sometime in high school, um, which is a, a little while ago, <laughs> early 2000s. Um, but it's not something I've always known about. But something that since I've known about is something that I've really embraced. Um, and even when it wasn't as um, celebratory, because for a long time where I lived, you couldn't even find a celebration. No one wasn't really even doing anything uh, for Juneteenth. And so now it's something that I've personally reflected upon, um, something that I really amplified even in the corporate space, um, something I really do acknowledge. And I think it's, it's very important, especially during this time where there is so much miseducation and revision of history going around, I think this becomes most appropriate and most important um, that this becomes something that is amplified in our homes because that's where it begins in our schools and in our communities. So, absolutely, Ioma, can you talk more about the history of Juneteenth? Sure, and I want to say that even though I was born in Texas, mm -hmm. I as well did not really start celebrating it. I was in my thirties 
after mm. I had kids. So I think is we have to think about sort of how are we educated, right? I have to go through and unlearn some things and then relearn our real history. And so I would say really the history of Juneteenth is really, as I said, really started in terms of at least where in Texas it became a holiday to really remember that part of the U.S., was constructed through the bodies and the mind of black people, right? And I think about 40 states now actually acknowledge Juneteenth, but I think that this should be part of our call to action is that for you as to stop denying the role and the power and the brilliance and excellence of black people, part of that has to reside in making sure that Juneteenth is a national holiday. It's like the Memorial, you know how we had Memorial Day just a, a couple of weeks ago? It should be a time when we really are really sitting down and understanding what is the contribution of black people? How many people stand on the bodies? How many people stand on the civil rights movement that really started? How many people stand on the fact of George Floyd, right? That, that happened in 2020, his death unearthed a whole bunch of stuff. And not everybody wants civil rights, wants their freedom, wants all this liberation off of the backs of black people. So to me, Juneteenth is really this idea. We have to recognize all of black people, what we have provided to the US, but also I keep, I wanna underscore global society, blackness has crossed the pond and many, many other continents. So we have to bring that, really make it a global celebration of, of our brilliance, but also of the fact that we have so much that we have to do for black people's liberation and true, true freedom. You know, I'm glad that you brought up the examples of George Floyd because I feel like Juneteenth just felt very different in 2020. We were going through two pandemics, the pandemic of racism on top of the global health crisis, uh, which is still ongoing and still disproportionately affecting Black Americans. Yoma, what impact does Juneteenth have and, and what impact does it have now in 2021? So I, th I think in many ways, it's really that coupling, right, of, of racism, but also the coupling. And, and I think in many ways, I always say COVID is horrible, right? Nobody wants a, a COVID at all. We want to go back to, quote, unquote, whatever was normal. However, I think it was really important that it happened when it did, right, in terms of COVID-19. And then people had to witness the murder of a Black man on camera for eight minutes and 47 seconds. And I think in many ways, it said, oh, my goodness, Black lives do matter. We actually have to say, well, why did he get killed? Why is that black people are still being killed even if they have no guns? We have young children being killed even if they have no guns. We have all of these issues that have been unearthed. And I think in many ways, Juneteenth is a time when I think America has to look at itself and says, have you delivered on the promise of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, have you fully understood that black people has contributed so much to the country and to the world, but are still the most oppressed people, right? That we still have black women who are, who are given birth and then dying during birth, who have young children who actually die in the first year of life, who are still struggling to try to get a job. Actually, we know from the data now that black women in particular with children, had to leave the workforce at a much higher level because of whether it's COVID-19, the work environment, or just trying to find childcare. So in many ways, to me, Juneteenth should be a time when, when the country begins to say, what do we need to do for Black people after they have given so much to the country and still do on so many levels? So Amari um, Lewis left a comment via LinkedIn saying, yes, promote and protect Black liberation education 
throughout curriculum examples are the 1619 project. Uh, thank you for that, Amari. Um, Damon and Evan, I want to get your thoughts on the celebration of Juneteenth this year in particular. You know, I, I was having a, a conversation yesterday with a, a high school friend and she was like, yeah, and she just mentioned Juneteenth so casually. And I was like, I was actually shocked because we weren't talking about this five, 10 years ago, you know, I knew about it because at the time I was working for the New York Amsterdam News and they put me on assignment to cover Juneteenth and I had to self-educate sort of on the fly. Uh, but it wasn't something that was common knowledge, but we hear more and more about Juneteenth. Uh, Damon, what are your thoughts on that? Um, as far as the celebration of Juneteenth, as far yes. as... And in and so, say that again? I'm sorry. Yes, and in 2021. Yeah, yeah, definitely in 2021. I mean, I'm encouraging and hopefully everybody to go out and be intentional. I think it's important. Mark it on your calendar. Be intentional about it. Create a celebrate. Don't allow corporations to outdo us on this, please. Don't, I mean, I mean, don't just take it as a payday off when it's on a weekday. You know, do something intentional. Get the family together. Make it about a time where we remember liberation. We promote liberation. We talk freedom. We talk about how to continue the process of freedom. Because truth is, Juneteenth was beginning of a process, uh, a process that we are still in. So I'm prepared. Go to Brooklyn go to Buffalo, go to Texas. I mean, there's so many places. I think it's something that we have to blow up in our, our own communities. We have to be intentional about making this a celebratory um, environment. I mean, really. Be in, I love what, what the doctor said, that it's right. about Black joy. Let's, let's be joyful. Let's turn into a time of joy. Let's celebrate. Let's dance in the streets, y'all. So... Eleanor Cator, Cato left a comment via LinkedIn saying this country was built on the back of slavery. Absolutely. We deserve more than just a holiday. We deserve reparations. And then Chantel Maria left a comment via Facebook saying we don't need anyone to give us permission to celebrate or take the day off to celebrate Juneteenth. Let us do it globally. We must care more about us and our cultural heritage. When we value our history, it makes it hard for others to deny our resilience and accomplishments mm -hmm. and con contributions. Thank you, Chantel. That that pretty much echoes, I think, what mm -hmm. Damon was saying. Uh, Evan, mm -hmm. I know you had some comments and a question. Uh, yes. So I, I echo Chantel's comment. I also echo Eleanor's earlier comment. We are we are students for life. The truth will set this country free. We are students for life. And uh, I believe absolutely, Selena, that it should celebrate joy. I found the celebration we went to in Prospect Park, Brooklyn, last year, an extremely joyful uh, occasion. Yes, in the middle of the pandemic. Yes, in the middle of just a assault of uh, Black life in the, in the media and historically, but still joy. Joy being the strength throughout that. Joy being in spite of that. And that was a beautiful thing. And I think for those who are not Black, it's very important for that education to continue, for people to say, hey, here's why people are celebrating. Or when, when it's the anniversary of the Tulsa mask, here's why. Here, there used to be something called Black Wall Street that was destroyed by and enabled by law enforcement and white supremacists. And it as it is you know, around uh, later than your great grandma was born, not too long ago. So I think it's important uh, as any white ally should do to continue that education. So to move quickly to the question I had for the doctor, which is we've seen critical race theory discussed a lot in the news and in Florida it is now outright banned. And I'm just wondering what are the, the, these constant barriers to education keep getting thrown up, critical race theory that discusses 
race, racism is really a systemic thing, not just some random bad apple personal bias. How do we combat these uh, barriers that keep getting thrown up, such as banning such an important uh, part of our uh, educational system at a young age? So, you know, this is, you know, this sort of, you know, ban of critical race theory is something that started with the former occupier of the White House, right? So this was one that said you couldn't talk about anything about racism, about, you know, it was really about white fragility. That's really what this is all about, right? And so to me, if we're trying to really liberate ourselves, right, and, and but in particular for Black people to fully feel the fullness of what this country is, right? It's almost like when you, when you have an issue with sort of alcohol, you have to sort of first recognize the problem and then you can move forward. And this country continues to sort of avoid the problem and say, we wanna go ahead and keep drinking. And so part of what, what we have to continue to do is that we have to continue to teach our children and that's black people, but also white people have to teach their children about the full history and the true history of the US, right? So think about it. I am at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And um, we know that Nicole Hannah-Jones was denied tenure because of the 1619 Project, a, a clear history of the US and the brutality that the US started on the backs of black people. So when anything concerns sort of trying to sort of elevate black people and, and the history and how we have to move forward, there's always this, this backlash, right? It's almost like the backlash of we can't talk about reparations for black people because why we're not full humans we're not allowed we, we should not get a public apology we should not be our, our community should not experience the repair the the healing that must happen for us to all move forward again to me i just feel like this is one of those other tactics that are being used to continue to sort of silence blackness silence the trauma silence the healing that must happen so i think what we have to all do is collectively say you know what all of us, not just black people, we should not, black people don't have to keep working at this. This is this is the work for the whole country to say, you know what, black people are the reasons we are here. The reason we get to sort of go to the movie theater, go to a grocery store, get to go into buildings that were built on the backs of black people. So what we should be doing is making sure that our education system from early childhood through on, that we teach these things. The fact that I, as a 40 something year old, did not really know Juneteenth until I was 30. And I was born in Texas in 1979, tells you everything you need to know. And I got a doctor in front of my name on top of that. So it tells you everything that we need to know is that we need to make sure we educate all of our people, all of our children as early as possible. Don't wait till you're 30. Right. You start no. when they're born. To your point, we got a comment via YouTube from uh, Nuki Nuke, who says, black parents have to stop relying on school systems. Teach your own kids the true history uh, to your point doctor and you know another thing you have a report titled looking ahead to juneteenth centering black parents voices in the age of covid 19 and racial reckoning as we're commemorating this holiday why is it so important to lift up the black family unit in respect to juneteenth so thank you for that. So I want to say that, you know, Black, don't forget that the history of the country meaning, meant that a lot of Black families were actually destroyed in many ways, right? That we were property. So that means that children were taken away, husbands were taken away, wives, women were raped. So that is the construction of the U.S. brutality. And we still see a lot of that oppressive system still with us in that for Black families, more than 25% of Black families and parents in particular of young children under the age of five were concerned about their children's experiences of racism, being unfairly treated, being unfairly suspended in many ways. A lot of Black families 
especially with young children, one of the most expensive time of your life where you have young, young children, they experience high levels of economic instability, not being able to pay rent, utilities, all these other things. And they were struggling with their own healthcare needs, their child's healthcare needs, and also that their childcare options, right? So, so COVID-19 coupled with racism is really still impacting black families. And we know from all of our evidence and data that the first few years of life is the most critical time for children's development. And families, we have to keep families strong, as somebody just said, right? That families is a space where children get to learn to develop relationships, heal, learn about their history. But if our families are still struggling with the daily life, are still struggling with the weight of racism, with police brutality, that means that they are doing so much more than other people. So we have to continue to support our families, not just economically, we must do that, but also socially, emotionally, and mentally, but also provide the childcare they need, provide the sick leave, the medical leave that really helps to stabilize families in many, many ways. But of course, making sure that we are able to create a stronger family through our policies that centers the black race, and in particular, all of the assault during the, obviously the, the, the start of the country. So Margaret uh, Deal Boats left a comment via LinkedIn saying healing needs to happen at every level of our society. Thank you for that, Margaret. And thank you, Ioma. Um, you know, before we start to close this conversation, what ties would you say June team has on building generational wealth, black resilience, and just the ongoing struggle for freedom and liberation? Yes, and if everybody had, if you, unless you've been under a stand, you know that black families in particular have about 10 times less wealth. So like for every average family, it's about $10,000 for a black family compared to $170,000 for a white family. That's what racism did is that whole intergenerational wealth. And so for us, for Juneteenth, I would say that we have to continue to figure out what is it that black families need to thrive? How do we take on ourselves? What do we need? We need to ask and demand that we get education that is for us, that we demand jobs, that we demand access to the financial tools that's going to not just stabilize us today, but address all of the ills from 400 plus years ago. We have to ask for the education and the health system that works for us and not just white people. So we have to continue to demand it. And again, we have to thank all of the leaders, the Black Lives Matter movement and so many others. And of course, we have to think about all of our black mothers and mamas who continue to fight for civil rights, continue to fight for healthcare, jobs, and all these other things. So I would say that part of Juneteenth is for us to say, what do we want as a black community? What is our black agenda for liberation, for affirmation? Give us free, as you know, they said at Amistad. We need to literally have that and demand that. Absolutely. So we do have to bring this conversation to a close. But before we do, I want to get the panel's last thoughts on Juneteenth as a holiday and just how we can uh, really turn what Juneteenth is uh, um, into a movement, right, into a celebration year round, into, into education and also what needs to be done to turn into a national holiday. We'll start with you, Damon. Final thoughts. I mean, my final thoughts is I love what the doctor said um, about education, about policy, about an agenda. That is something that we should really glean from the spirit of Juneteenth, that we are talking about liberation as the process, as an agenda. That is something we want. And though we stick our flag on June the 19th, this is something that should awaken in all of us that we want full freedom full liberation. We, yes, we celebrate, but we continue to fight. And my other comment I would say of this, 
I just want to give a quick warning to all of the wannabe hoteps out there, right? That would use Juneteenth as a time to bring a little rain on our parade and say, "Well, y'all, y'all, y'all Negroes not really free." Uh, I, I, I want you to just cancel all that noise out because we have a lot to celebrate. All of the blood, sweat, and tears, and the struggle that my ancestors, being here since the 1700s, have done, uh, resistance and resilience to ensure that I have a level of freedom today is worthy of a dance, a celebration, a song, a hand clap, or something. So don't allow anyone throw rain on our parade on Juneteenth and make it seem like, well, we still not free. We know that freedom is a process and it's a struggle, but we still have something to celebrate. So. Well said. Right on, Damon. Uh, Evan, we have a few seconds left. And your closing thoughts on, again, turning Juneteenth into a movement, a year-round celebration. A few seconds. Yes. I, I think that joy, education, and the five forward can all go together. And I completely agree with Damon. There is nothing. Joy is not the antithesis to progress and to the fight. In fact, it is crucial to empowering it. So joy is very important to this. And for, especially for the white folks and the non-black folks out there, celebrate joy with our, our, our black brothers and sisters, but our education is extremely important because we need to move that needle of getting more people, more non-black people involved in the freedom that will liberate black folks, will allow for Juneteenth national holiday or not, I agree with the doctor, outside education is paramount and we can help foster that. But regardless, we need to be at the forefront of the fight because black folks have been always at the forefront of the fight for this country. So we need Absolutely. to be at the forefront of the yes. fight to moving the liberation. Ioma, we know that you have an upcoming event, the Riser Network webinar on June 17th. It starts at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's called Looking Ahead to Juneteenth, Centering Black parents' voices in the age of COVID-19 and racial rec reckoning. Tell us how people can sign up and if you can just give us a brief snippet of what to expect quickly. Sure, absolutely. So yeah, so you should be able to see the link hopefully in the chat where you can uh, register. And really it is time when we're going to be talking with some prominent leaders around what could we do from the National Black Child Development Institute, from Point of Access and from Zero to Three to really say, how can we center racial equity in our ongoing work to improve the well-being of black parents, families and their young children amid the pandemic. So it is a time we should all come together and support our black families, our children and our communities. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Iroka. Thank you, Damon. Thank you, Evan. I'll just end the show by saying this. Juneteenth is a celebration of our ancestors who created spaces of meaning, hope, and struggle in a foreign land that killed, raped, and enslaved us. For me, Juneteenth serves, serves as a reminder that the struggle for freedom continues. It's also a reminder that people of all races and creeds need to participate in that fight because we'll never all be free until the least of us are completely free. And then lastly, on top of freedom, it is a time to just celebrate and relish in black joy. Black joy is a form of resistance. It is you know, heard through the gospels, it is seen in our dances, it's seen in the way we move, and it's seen in the way that we've continued to thrive in spite of the centuries long of oppression, killing, enslavement, we are still here, we built this country, and we deserve to celebrate at least 
for one day. So happy Juneteenth to all of you guys. Live it up. Again, poor libations out for the ancestors. And remember that we belong here <laughs> more than anything else. And the fight for reparations continue. On that note, I want to thank everyone who tuned in to Be Her Talk with Selena Hill today. Remember to please support us by buying us a coffee. You can go to buymeacoffee.com slash Be Her Talk. And by giving us your support, we will continue to support the issues and the causes that you care about. I'll see you again next Sunday.